0: All right, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, So let's just start with a word of prayer and then we'll get into today's uh, last two sessions. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in this place. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the sun that is shining today. We thank you for the many blessings you've bestowed upon us here at GYC thus far. We just ask, Lord, that you be with us in this presentation. And be with us, Lord. Send your Holy Spirit as we go through the rest of this conference. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, I'm Eric Walsh. Um, I'm assuming most of you were here yesterday, so I won't give a big background of who I am. I am a physician primarily by trade um, in Orange County, California. I, I am the medical director right now for the jail system for the county. Um, so I work inside of the jails with maximum security all the way down to minimum security, women's jails, juvenile facilities, juvenile camps even. Um, And I'm also um, a pastor, I say a lay pastor, um, for one of the churches in Southern California. Uh, So I enjoy doing this and realize, you know, the privilege that comes with being a part of the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, We have so far been dealing with um, the Dragons War on the Remnant. The first session was in search of the remnant, and we looked at the remnant church, who was the remnant church, and um, really went in depth on the spirit of prophecy and what prophecy means to those of us who are alive after Ellen White, because a lot of us think the spirit of prophecy is the te- simply the testimonies that were given to us by Sister White, when in fact, there's a lot that we have to do if we're the remnant, because we're supposed to also have the spirit of prophecy. Um, the dragon in the digital age, so we dealt with technology and how it is being used by the enemy against the church, um, secret agents and double agents, we talked a lot about some of the big and popular uh, pastors, uh, Christian leaders, politicians on some level um, that seem to fake being Christian but really are not and actually are doing things uh, in, you know, subversively to, the, to damage Christianity. Real Dragon, False Doctrine. We talked about some of the doctrinal wars uh, last session yesterday. And actually, I was able to bring up those videos into this first talk this morning. So you'll be able to watch the video on Oprah Winfrey and both short videos and um, the one T.D. Jakes did against the Sabbath. So we'll do that at the end of this session. Um, And so this first one is the war on the testimonies. And we're going to talk about um, the battle that is going on against... The writings of Sister White, and what I'm going to really uh, do—I could get into a lot of the stuff. I'm in California. Somehow, I got on the mailing list of a group that is very anti-Adventist, and in particular, very uh, anti-Ellen White. And I've been reading their stuff for years, and I've always said I'm going to write them, but I never do because the stuff is just so foolish and outlandish. I, I can't even take the time to respond to how stupid some of the stuff they say really is but there really is a battle and in essence you know to sum up this talk in a few seconds the reality is that the dragon is mad at anything that really clearly identifies the remnant really clearly instructs and edifies the remnant and anything that is really going to prepare people for the second coming of jesus christ so the enemy is going to be ferociously angry at those things in particular um because of the clarity with which Ellen White teaches two doctrines, she will always be hated. One of them is who the Church of Rome is and the dragon, the beast of Rome. All of that doctrine around the Catholic Church is going to make it so that she will ne- her name will never know peace. They will always raise up an army against them. Because, in fact, the only real vestige of Protestantism that still speaks those truths are, is, is the Seventh-day Adventist Church primarily... And most particularly and clearly is Ellen White. And so you're going to always have people who simply are not going to like her. She's going to be come out against. When you consider there are a billion Catholics with all of the resources that they have, you know that that's going to happen. Oh, thanks. Let's plug this in. And then the other thing is... Um, this thing is fancy. I should ask asked them to set it up. <laughs> um, the other thing is... There's very few people who actually articulate righteousness by faith in the context of commandment keeping. And so there are a lot of people who separate the two. I mean, so you get, you know, a Jehovah's Witness or even a Muslim that will give you rules, regulations, commandments, laws, morally and ethically right laws that need to be kept. But it's void of righteousness by faith and the power that comes from knowing God. Or you have people that just take grace, like I said yesterday, and turn it into disgrace. Because of grace and righteousness by faith, they feel, well, I can live any way I want. Once I'm saved, I'm always saved. And there's very few people who clearly articulate how those two things come together. The commandment keeping and at the same time, righteousness by faith. So Ellen White is never going to know peace because of that. The devil does not like that. And then you throw in the Sabbath, and we talked about Roger Mennoe's testimonial about how when he was a demon worshiper, um... When they, when they talked about the two great deceptions that Satan loves, first day worship and, and uh, people believing that the dead live on, um, the, a guy in the back raised his hand and said, what about the Adventists? And, and Roger Mano says that the demon priest said, the, the Seventh Adventists can't be deceived because they keep the Sabbath. And so anyone who teaches clearly, again, the Sabbath in the context of rest, in the context of rejuvenation, in the context of commitment to God is going to have fire come against them. Uh, and the same thing with the health message. Ellen White's perspective and the way she teaches the health message is a very balanced approach to it. And it is, it is the right motivation. She really instructs us so that we eat, drink, live, so that we are better connected to God. Eating and drinking well isn't really the end point so that we live a long life on this earth. It is so that we are better connected to God. And all of those things make it so that she will never be liked very much. And until we get that, we, we, we might as well accept that because we're going to always be battling, thank you, battling um, people who are going to come against her. And it, it doesn't have to be logical. What you learn in America from watching the two extremes of news, Fox News and, and MSNBC, and I, I actually watch both of them because then you kind of get the truth in the middle if you balance them out a little bit. Um, and I don't watch them much, but if you watch them on two issues, you realize both sides kind of believe if you just say something loud enough long enough, it's truth. That really is the, that there is no more news in the United States. It's, it's done. I mean, the days of Walter Cronkite and, uh, Cronkite and these guys who really just stated the facts is gone. And there's this idea that if it's said loud enough, long enough, consistently enough, it's truth, has become news now. So really people's opinions are what you, most people don't even realize it's, what they call news nowadays is really commentary. What would have been editorials 20 or 30 years ago. So it's the same principle that they're going to try and apply to the writings of Ellen White. What I want to do before we go to those videos is just show um, some of the things um, that is said. And I took out a lot of this. I have a whole presentation on it. And I kind of just whittle it down to a few, few slides just to talk about some of the key prophecies of Ellen White um, that I believe um, really point to the fact that she's a prophet and to the reason why she's so hated. Um, She says in the testimonies, God is either teaching his church, reproving their wrongs, and strengthening their faith, or he is not. This work is of God, or it is not. God does nothing in partnership with Satan. My work bears the stamp of God or the stamp of the enemy. There is no halfway work in the matter. One of the things a lot of people try and do at L.O.I. is to try and say, well, you know, maybe she's okay some of the time, but throw away, you know, this whole half of what she says, and people start to try and treat her like a buffet or a smorgasbord, and, you know, you kind of go through the line and take what you want, and you well, yeah, I'll take this, but I'm not, you know, the vegetarian thing, I'm going to leave that, you know, I'm not going to take that one, and I'll take this, but I, the music thing, I'm, so she says no, either it, this is of God or it's not. Either, I'm a, either, either she's a prophet that God inspired to teach truth, or she isn't. There's no halfway in there. And so you can't begin to water it down or, 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 or turn it into a you know, hometown buffet. You have to pick. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God, where there is no vision, the people perish, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnants people in in the true testimony. This, is, this prophecy was, has been fulfilled so many different ways. Everything from Ford's deceptions um, all the way through to rat's laugh stuff that he produces now. Um, the idea of plagiarism which is an amazing uh, accusation when in fact the plagiarism laws didn't even come into existence until after Ellen White had died. So there was no such thing as legal plagiarism in her day. Um, and more importantly, when you study her writings, in fact, I don't, see the, I don't even see how you make the plagiarism charge because the part of her writings that we actually want are when she's commentating and, and you can tell where she really goes into what God is showing her. And when you see that, it, there is no place that you can find it elsewhere in any book. Ellen White might describe the Garden of Eden and people say, well, you can find this description somewhere else. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But it's what she says about what happens in the Garden of Eden and why God set it up. It's the unique perspective that she's given that makes her writings powerful. And I've gone through a lot of those things and looked at it and it's just, again, it's, it's really just made up stuff. Trumped up charges because like she says, Satan is going to work ingeniously. In different ways and through different agencies. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. And unfortunately, some of these agencies are inside the Adventist church. There are people inside the Adventist church that don't like Ellen White. That, don't, that wish we didn't call her a prophet. That wish we had never accepted her writings as, as, a, as, as, a, as, a, as a further instruction for our church And Ellen White is the one who says that she's a lesser light to the greater light. If we had read the Bible the way we're supposed to, there'd be no reason for her writings. I mean, she goes on and on and on. But one of the things that really impresses me about her writings, one, is her humility. And the fact that she wrote volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of books with a limited education, and yet speaks so profoundly to today. I mean, it is an amazing thing. And... And I don't even go into this in this presentation, but as a physician, I'm incredibly impressed with how well she actually understands what medical science didn't understand for another 50 or 60 years after she had written. Ellen White is the one that talks about the lines that are etched into the mind from habits. When you do things over and over and over again, long before real neuroscience had even existed, she ex- described what happens with the mountains in the brain and the, and the nerve pathways that literally do get, make a groove, literally, in the brain. And that groove, as it gets deepened, deepens the effect of the habit. And just like she says, once they're made, there really is no way to undo them. Ellen White said that decades before we discovered that. Profound truth, and we now know just as she says. The only way to really overcome that is to create a new habit with deeper grooves than the old one. And how does? She, I mean, where do you get that from? If, if science itself doesn't even come to that till years later. And I could go on and on about many of the things about the health message and, and, and certain foods. She, in fact, Ellen White, really, when she speaks about not eating meat, one of the primary reasons she gives is that the quality of meat in the last days would not be suitable for food. That's one that's of the main reasons she says stop eating meat. That was long before there was mad cow's disease. That was long before these massive E. coli outbreaks all over the country. Before, that was during a time when animals were still f- free grazing organically grown. Animals were raised very healthily in her day compared to today. There were no fish farms. You know they have fish farms now? Big tanks that they just drop all the fish in and the fish have to fight for food and in order to keep them alive they got to drop antibiotics in the tank. So the fish that you eat isn't even really from the ocean. The same thing they do with packing the cows one on top of the other and then feeding them all antibiotics. So our big epidemic of MRSA, the methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, is probably more a function of all of the antibiotics that Americans are eating through um, uh, taking in meat and fish than it is from, uh, you know, actually the prescriptions of physicians, even though that didn't help either. Yet these things she said a long time ago, and I'm always amazed at the... The, the, the ferocity against which she's ha- with, with such hatred when in fact modern science itself bails her out believe me if modern science didn't bail her out they would plaster it all over the place but they can't because modern science bails her out and it's so uh, objective that it's one of the things that they just leave alone her critics really don't touch it and try and deal with the nebulous kind of things like talking about amalgamation and when you study that you understand uh, and I, what bothers me is i was at loma linda working urgent care one Sunday, and one of the nurses walks in with a sheet of paper and slaps it down in front of me on the desk and says, Ellen White was a racist. I said, what are you talking about? I just, you know, I just got to work. I don't even want to be here on Sunday. Um, And she's like, yeah, in Sabbath school yesterday at the university church, somebody gave a Sabbath school lesson, and the reason I'll say it is because they actually gave a real Sabbath school class lesson on how Ellen White was a racist. And went through these talk, things about amalgamation. I said, do you understand? I went to Oakwood College, one of the oldest historically black colleges and universities in the United States. Ellen White commissioned her own son to go into the deep south at a time when he could be killed for teaching black students anything so that they could establish an Adventist university in northern Alabama. The idea that she's a racist just doesn't fly with me. Never mind the fact that I was then able to show her from the book Southern Works the incredible language she uses long before Martin Luther King that sounds like, almost like he ripped it from her pages when he gave the I Have a Dream speech. And I, when I went to La Sierra last year and spoke for Black History Month, I actually used that quote. It's a beautiful quote that she gives that talks about um, that God is no respect of persons and in heaven and in the book of life, the black man's name is written next to the white man's name and uh, um, stature, race. Um, I don't know what else she says, means nothing. What matters is the man's character. Literally the same wording that Martin Luther King would use, you know, 60 years later, or 70 years later. So the idea that this is a racist doesn't fly, because you found one or two little texts about her speaking about amalgamation, and not understanding that when she was speaking about races, Ellen White liked the Bible, and in our text yesterday in Ezra, when it says the seed, this holy seed, when the Bible speaks about Um, um, these different groups of peoples literally it's spiritual more than it is physical the races that Ellen White is speaking about are the race of Cain against the race of Seth it is the belief those who obey God and those who don't and if you just read enough of the writing you actually get to where she explains that if you pull it out somewhere else it looks as if there's two because America all we know are black and white as races but in fact, the truth is, she's saying no. And even Cain, the Bible, I have a whole thing I do on um, the sons of God. The Bible says that Cain's father is the devil. Adam's father was God, Luke tells us, and when he gives the genealogy of Christ. So you got to understand that before you do it. But here is a, one of our own Sabbath school classes at one of our own churches teaching a, a really terrible and, 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 and really shameful lie against the woman who helped establish our church, and found our church. But this comes because, again, there are secret agents that have infiltrated the church that really have, do not have the best interest of the Seventh-day Adventist church at heart. They really want to tear down the Seventh-day Adventist church. And just as she says, one of the best ways that the devil can do that is to destroy the, the, our faith in her writings. And I am someone who really loves, I love, I mean, I love to read the scripture, and I love to read the scripture, and what I like to do is actually read the scripture and read what she says at the same time, and try and get a more full understanding of the scripture that way. I don't just, I don't not read the Bible. In fact, I'm not, a, I'm not even a Seventh-day Adventist because of Ellen White. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because of, I believe what the Bible teaches. So if Ellen White had never written anything, I'd still be a Seventh-day Adventist. The fact is, what she does is give me bonus material. You know, I like on a DVD? You get bonus material. You get extra instruction. You, you got to get the director's uh, uh, edit, and you get them, the, you know, the whole overtalk they do in some of the movies. You get that through Ellen White's writings. It doesn't change the movie, the Bible itself. But it does give you a better understanding of it. And really, for the last days, things like the quality of meat will not be fit for food is something that couldn't have been written in the Bible. You, I mean, it just, it just who was going to say that, John? I mean, who, who going to say that? <laughs> but God has the power to give people instruction in the last days, and he will. And I believe there will be others who will be given the ability to really give strong instruction. I think we have people who give strong instruction in our church still to this day. So it's going to be out of order because I pulled a lot of them out. But she said the different denominational churches will seek unity, This is something that ecumenicalism has proven, another one of our prophecies that for sure is a true prophecy. The wide diversity of belief in the Protestant churches is regarded by many as decisive proof that no effort to to secure a forced uniformity can ever be made. But there has been for years in churches of the Protestant faith a strong and growing sentiment in favor of a union based on common points of doctrine. To secure such a union, the discussion of subjects upon which all were not agreed, uh, however important they might be, from a Bible standpoint, must necessarily be waived. And this is, has already happened. We all know that. I mean, we now have non denominational churches. And you know what non denominational means? Non doctrinal. Because in order to be non denominational, you can't believe anything. Or you have to have a very loose set of belief systems. Because if you if once you start saying we believe this, somebody's going to say, well, I don't agree with you, and they're not going to come to your church. And a lot of people who seem to want to turn the Adventist Church into a non-denominational church. Loi says the Protestants will reach out and clasp the hand of Roman Catholicism. Protestantism will stretch her hand across the Gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power. I don't know if anything has been better fulfilled than this. And like I said yesterday, there was a time in America when there were anti-Catholic leagues in most Protestant churches. Protestantism was the great one of the great pillars of this republic. That's gone. Because they've washed away, you don't hear any, you will not turn on a television evangelist or go to most churches and hear them talk about the fathers of the Protestant Reformation anymore. Gone. Martin Luther, Huss. none of those people are going to be discussed. The Walden sees only one set of people still discuss those people, and that's really us. And there are a few other people outside of us who do, but in general, those people aren't discussed because it's politically incorrect to mention Martin Luther because Catholics, Obviously, don't like them. I was doing a, a talk for the fellows at Morehouse School of Medicine, um, in sexuality and health, and they chose me to represent Protestants, and they chose a Catholic pediatrician, very nice guy, um, to come and speak as well. And he, of course, came with a very Catholic. You know, it's a sin. Everything was a sin, 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 sin. sin. Um, and you have to, you know, and penance. And you know, really came with a very hardcore anti-abortion. Um, political kind of a, of a talk I went second and I spoke to them about God's love for you and why sexual purity is a part of God's plan and then I went into the fact that as a Christian set different from the Catholics I'm a Protestant because of righteousness by faith because many of you say it is impossible for you to live right for you to do the things that we're telling you need to be done in terms of for sexual purity what I'm telling you is that when you believe in God he gives you the strength to live right and I went to Martin Luther, and, and I said, you know, this is why Martin Luther did what he did. And instantly the Catholic guy said, you know, I don't really like Martin Luther. <laughs> so you understand that when she said that, America was a very different place. <clears throat> but we have lived to see that who, nobody does it. The Crystal Cathedral, you know, we saw Billy Graham yesterday really kowtow to the uh, Catholic Church. They just don't do it. Media-savvy Catholics and Protestants are teaming up to preserve shared values, author says. Almost identical to what she says in her, in, in her quote is almost identically what is being said in this article from April of last year. April of, well, what are we, was this the first yet? April of 2008. Um, although certain doctrinal differences remain in place, conservative Catholics and the evangelical Christians, and you notice Protestantism gave way to evangelicalism. This, is no lo- this word should be Protestant, really. But the very word Protestant means you are protesting Rome and its practices. And so that's why evangelical became a word that is used. It is also used because Protestantism is very apolitical. You can't protest Rome and then be into all of the political nitpicking that we see in the United States. Evangelical works better. Evangelical Christians have been drawn closer together in recent years according to a new book that explores growing influence of Christian voters. Notice. It's all about politics. This is how the beast uh, um, is really going to work in the United States to get these Sunday laws passed. Um, Deal Hudson, the executive director of the Morley Institute for Church and Culture in Washington, D.C., age-old grievances have gradually receded to the point where Christians from various denominations have joined together to resist secular assaults on shared values. Onward, Christian soldiers, the growing political power of Catholics and evangelicals in the United States. Could Ellen G. White have written that any better what she wrote, and when you look at what is written in one of the headlines from a, a little over a year ago. Yet people say she has, you know, she's not a prophet. She doesn't have, God didn't work with her. Blah, 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 blah. I don't know how you get that when you, but a lot of those people don't read her writings. That's part of the reason why they don't see it. Protestant churches will unite and influence the state to enforce their beliefs. Ellen White says, when the churches of our land uniting up upon such points of faith as are held by them in common, Shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and sustain their institutions, then will Protestant America have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy? This is why, when they want to put the Ten Commandments up in buildings and they're fighting for some of the things, we have to really be careful. We are in a catch-22 at Seventh Avenue. On the one hand, we don 't like the the very liberal onslaught on society that destroys marriage and and righteousness and, and and good moral principles. but on the other hand, we know that we have to be careful when we start trying to support the legislation of moral issues and moral things and even biblical things because we understand that once that train starts out of the gate it's going to be hard to get that train back and so once we 're in a catch twenty two because in the essence, I agree with much of what you know, the conservative right-wing Americans do believe on moral issues. I don't believe we should have gambling parlors everywhere, medical marijuana clinics, you know, rampant abortion going on in our country. But I know that the more if I jump on that bandwagon and we push that train, that train is going to stop at a Sunday law. That's the station it's going to pull into. So it's a difficult catch-22 for us, which is why we really have to remain Advent focus. We have to keep our focus on the fact that Christ is coming and that there's a new kingdom being formed. Another one says, the wall between churches and state will be broken down and Protestant American Christians will look to the Pope. Then the investing, This investing the church with the power of the state will bring evil results. Men have almost passed the point of God's forbearance. They have invested their strength in politics and have united with the papacy. But the time will come when God will punish those who have made made void his law. And the evil work will recoil upon themselves. So you know that she's right when he says that we'd reach out to the Pope because we've seen it. I watched Laura Bush on CNN with Larry King and her daughter talk about the Holy Father and how blessed he was and how peaceful he was. I mean, she spoke as if she had met Christ himself. Laura Bush, and the Bushes are, theoretically at least, Protestant. His brother is a Catholic, um, the former governor of Florida, um, Jeb Bush. But here you can see, I mean, there's a strong, with he's with the, with the rabbi, Here's the, uh, here he is with the, with, the, with the president of the United States. Barack Obama's already met with the pope as well in Rome. So, uh, you know, people get this big thing between the, the different presidents. I mean, you're just changing puppets. I mean, if you are not, you got to be politically savvy enough, I mean, if there was a huge change coming, we wouldn't no longer be in Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, you could, you could pull troops out anywhere if you want to. It's not that different. I mean, there's some subtle differences between the two parties, but they're not huge differences. And one of the ways that you know that is, he is a fixture in all of them. There's not been a president that doesn't go and make sure that the, the, the Pope of Rome is happy, um, whoever the Pope happens to be at that time. So Benedict gave a resounding endorsement of the role of religion in democratic society today. The need for global solidarity is as urgent as ever in an age of extremism and terror. So they used the war on terror to do this. The pontiff was greeted on the White House lawn by the President George Bush plus a 21-gun salute and a serenade from a world-class opera singer. Bush gave an address that rang through with conservative political ideas saying the United States needed the Pope's message that all life is sacred. A reference to the abortion debate and your message to reject this dictatorship of relativism. Powerful stuff, just as Ellen White said. we would reached to the Pope in the last days, and you can see it clearly is happening. I mean, it was Ronald Reagan who set up, again, an, um, an envoy, an official ambassador to the Vatican, And the Vatican itself means the divining serpent, the speaking serpent. If you go to the Catholic Church in downtown San Francisco, the the, the handles on the front door are dragons. It's a bizarre mix of paganism, mysticism, zodiac signs, or you go to Europe and go to cathedrals. It's a bizarre mix of all these things, and this is why we're warned to stay away from it, because spiritualism is already in Catholicism, and now it's joining the church. She says, the very name of witchcraft is now held in contempt. The claim that that men can hold intercourse with evil spirits is regarded as a fable of the dark ages, but spiritualism, which numbers its converts by the hundreds of thousands, yea, by the millions, which has made its way into scientific circles, which has invaded churches and has found favor in legislative bodies, and even in the courts of kings, this mammoth deception is but a revival in a new disguise of the witchcraft condemned and prohibited of old. Satan beguiles men now as he beguiled Eve in in Eden by exciting a desire to obtain forbidden knowledge. Ye shall be as gods. You're going to see that in that clip with Oprah Winfrey and Toll in a minute. Um, But you can see that one of the things that she predicted was spiritualism, witchcraft would would be redressed. Harry Potter is a good example of that in a very uh, blatant and open way. But the New Age movement in itself is powerfully, really, witchcraft, redesigned, and redressed. And that is the yoga, you know, you go play, and everybody's doing yoga, um, tai chi, and all this stuff. Witchcraft. Now, there's watered-down versions of it. There's some forms of it that are safer than others. I mean, the, the, the voodoo of Africa now is, in some circles in the United States, is a big deal to, um, you know, for people to take classes and, and African dance classes. All of these things are, as she's saying, a way to really redress this thing and show it out again. The prophecy, obviously, again, has come more than true. Um, she says the message of the God, this this is a, a quote from... Um, um, the, uh, a, a talk on the goddess in the liberal church and how the, now in churches now they're talking about the goddess now the goddess is Diana and Diana of Ephesus We remember in the Bible Paul talks about Diana of Ephesus Diana is one of the God, great goddesses with all the prostitutes um, had a place in Ephesus this is why Paul spent so much time with the Ephesians and really worked a lot of powerful miracles in Ephesus because he was battling against the spirits that were con- um, attached to the worship of Diana now, what the Catholic Church did was, they made this fairy tale fable, which I don't know that there's any proof to back it up, that John takes Mary to Ephesus, and that is where Mary lives out her life and dies, and what they do is they make the Virgin Mary and Diana the same person, so that witches, when you, when you, if you read what witchcraft says, witches will say, Diana still is alive, in fact, one billion people still worship her as Mary of the Christians, The Catholic Church merged Mary with Diana. So now, the next obvious step is, one, Mary worship is coming into churches, and the goddess is coming into churches. The message of the goddess has gained a hearing in the church as well. The philosophy of the goddess is currently being taught in the classrooms of some of our seminaries. In a growing number of seminaries, the student population is becoming increasingly female, and many of these women have a feminist outlook on life. Mary Daly, who considers herself to be a Christian feminist, a Christian feminist, says this about traditional Christianity. To put it bluntly, I propose that Christianity itself should be castrated. That's a rough statement. The primary focus of the Christian feminist is to bring an end to what they perceive as a male-dominated religion by castrating the male influence from the religion. Daly continued by saying, I am suggesting that the idea of salvation uniquely by a male savior perpetrate, uh, perpetuates the problem of patriarchal oppression. Ella White said that this, and this is witchcraft, in essence. The idea of a goddess to be worshiped in the church rather than the God of heaven. Drums and confusion will become a part of worship. I could probably just skip this one for most of you guys. huh? (laughs) The Lord has shown me what would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. A bedlam of noise shocks the senses and perverts that which, if conducted aright, might be a blessing. We often miss this statement. This is an important statement. The statement that says, if these things were conducted properly, they could be a blessing. In other words, this, a spirit in this that is not Christian. And that is my beef with, 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 with the music of, of, and the money of our churches. It isn't even that there's a drum set in there. My problem is the spirit with which they're playing the music. It is a a Hollywood spirit, a a Grammy Award spirit. It's a show uh, experience, more than it is a spiritual, holy experience. And she says if it was done right, it could be a blessing. The powers of satanic agencies blend with the dinner and noise to have a carnival, and this is termed the Holy Spirit's working. That's powerful stuff. The Holy Spirit has nothing to do with such such a confusion of noise and multitude of sounds. Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted. Again, it's the way it's done. Those participating in the supposed revival receive impressions which lead them um, adrift. They cannot tell what they formerly knew regarding regarding Bible principles. No encouragement should be given to this kind of worship. One of the reasons the devil wants this, and again, I mean, I could take it almost, you know, maybe 40 to 60% of the Adventist churches, and a lot more of the music is looking like this now. Um, But she says that the reason for this is that the devil understands that when you Music itself affects the brain differently. It bypasses the frontal lobe, the thinking part of your brain. I talked yesterday about it being the most holy place in the sanctuary. If you if you took your body and did an equation, the frontal lobe of your brain, 33% of the front part of your brain would be the frontal lobe. It is the most holy place in it. The Shekinah of glory of God is supposed to meet with you. Have the, you know, you're supposed to have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Um, the love of Christ should constrain you. That in your in your consciousness should be like the Ten Commandments. This is why David says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. He took the law. I meditate on your law day and night. The law is supposed to sit here as a reminder of right and wrong. But you can't take the, that right and wrong law and live right by it. The Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory, just like it fell in the most holy place of the sanctuary, has to fall in your mind. and then. Um, the love of Christ will constrain you. The God working and you believing will work together to get you to live right. That's what it does. Music bypasses the frontal lobe. Goes into the brainstem, the more basic, more rudimentary parts of your mind and stimulates you. That's why when you hear music, you, I mean, most people, they start moving. Just If I just start playing music, a lot of people just start, start tapping. or just, It naturally moves you and you don't even think about it. So it's a way for biblical principles to almost be, ev- ev- almost be either erased or ignored because when you hear music, you do not at the same time process um, linguistic information and input the same way. That's why they can make the lyrics to the song so terrible. And sometimes at seminars, all I do is put the lyrics up and the kids are aghast at the songs they're singing. Like you're singing the song. You know all the lyrics to all of the songs. Did you not realize this is actually what they were saying? Because when the music's played, the frontal lobe no longer processes it. And this is what Ellen White is really trying to warn us against. And she describes all these things. They'll be shouting. And one of the big arguments now is this dance dancing in church. And hopefully, and maybe not at your churches, but there are a lot of dance crews and, and, and praise dancing coming into the churches. And I went in front of my church. They try to bring that stuff in, and they're probably going to bring it in anyway. And I said, listen, somebody show me in the Bible. Show me from the God's word where a woman is ever sent to dance in front of a man she wasn't married to. It does not exist in scripture. In every example I give you like that, Belteshazzar's party, women were probably dancing in front of men. That didn't end so well. Right? You can go to the New Testament and, uh, and, and, and um, Herodias and Herod and John, when, they, when um, he asked for John the Baptist's head, the young girl danced in front of him and what happened? Didn't end so well either. In fact, when they say, well, well," you look at Miriam Mar- uh, dance, but normally Miriam, it says Miriam and the women danced. The women, in, in general, went away from men to dance. They didn't, there was no, and, and what we call dancing isn't even what they would have called dancing, quite frankly. If you've ever been to Israel and see Jewish dancing, it, it's not the same thing. Our dances, we take the dances from the clubs and bring them into the church. So it's not the same thing, but she. This was all when I was growing up in the Seventh Church. The idea of somebody dancing in church, I mean, I, I mean, everyone would have got up and walked out. Now we got miming in church, miming, oh, ancient witchcraft thing, and people in church miming. And what they say is, well, the young people have talents. You got to let them use their talents. What kind of crazy argument is that? So if I'm good at swallowing eggs whole, I should go to church and swallow eggs whole? <laughs> I mean, not, it makes absolutely no sense, that argument. But let's, um, let me get into the videos here because i got to play two of them real quick. So this, I showed you this slide yesterday showing the power of Oprah Winfrey to get um, Barack Obama elected um, and the 2 Timothy 3.5 having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So I want to play the video. Now, this worked last night, so if it doesn't work now, it's not my fault. Is it working? Hallelujah. Oh, I forgot. I got to put this. Wait, I'll get you some sound here. Hold on.
1: 300,000. The attendance is now over a million, and they conducted the first-ever mass trance on March 17, 2008. What do they teach? Who you are requires no belief. Heaven is not a location, but refers to the inner realm of consciousness. The man on the cross is an archetypal image. He is every man and every woman. The leader's website teaches these lessons. My mind is part of God's. I am very holy. My holiness is my salvation. My salvation comes from me. Let me remember that there is no sin. Do not make the pathetic error of, quote, clinging to the old rugged cross, unquote. The only message of the crucifixion is that you can overcome the cross. Have you heard of this church? Can you hold that right or there for Let
0: me get some water I don't She
1: denied Thanks. Jesus is the only way. One of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live and that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of
2: being in the world. There are billions of ways to be a human being and and many ways, many paths to what you call God, that her path might be something else and when she gets there she might call it the light. But her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. And I guess the danger that could be in that, I mean, it, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, there I think... There could possibly we're... be just one way. What what about Jesus? What about Jesus? You say there isn't only one way. Well, there, there is, is one it. way and only one way, and, and that is possibly, Jesus. There could possibly you the say
1: has turned the millions of adoring fans over to new age doctrine. Christians are letting this into their homes and are being deceived.
2: Well, again, everyone, welcome to week number three of our New Earth web class. And again, I uh, thank you, at Tolle, thank you for joining us as we bring students and seekers together to discuss our latest book club selection. Eckhart Tolle's, uh, you did something last week that was a... Uh, I told them wouldn't just sit there in silence? I, I, and I thought a lot of people responded to the sense of connection from that. So you want
0: to do that again? The mic is on it. <laughs> so you're going to leave us in silence? Simply
2: become aware that you are freezing. Air flows in and out as you feel yourself freezing. Air flows in and out as you feel In reading books such as Tolly's, it's really opened my eyes up to a new way of thinking, a new form of spirituality that doesn't always align with the teachings of Christianity. So my question is to you, Oprah: how have you reconciled these spiritual teachings with your Christian belief? I reconciled it because I was able to open my mind about the, um, the absolute, indescribable, hugeness of that which we call God uh, I took God out of the box because I grew up in the Baptist Church and there were you know rules and you know belief systems and doctrine and um, I happened to be um, sitting in church in my late 20s and I was going to this church where you had to get there at you know eight o'clock in the morning where you couldn't get seat very uh, charismatic minister, and everybody was just, you know, into the (laughs) sermon, and uh, this great uh, minister was preaching about how great God was, and how omniscient and omnipresent and God is everything, and then he said, and the Lord thy God is a jealous God, and I was, you know, caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous, and something struck me. Just when I was like, uh, I think about 27 or 28, I was thinking, God is all, God is omnipresent. God is all, and God's also jealous. Jealous, God is jealous of me. Uh, and something about that didn't, didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. And so that's when the, the, the search for something more than doctrine uh, starting to stir within me. And I love this quote that uh, Eckhart has. Uh, it's one of my favorite quotes in uh, Chapter 1, where he says, Man made God in his own image, who eternal, the infinite, and unnameable was reduced to a mental idol that you had to believe in and worship as my God or our God. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the consciousness of the world. Mm. So you believe what happens to us in death when the body dies. You don't have a belief. or don't give it at all. God, in the essence of all consciousness, isn't something to believe. God is. Yes. God is. And God is a feeling experience, not a believing experience. That's right. And if, and if you're your oh. religion is a believing experience, if God for you is still about a belief, then it's not truly God. That's what you're saying.
1: Yes. But that's not all. She's entered the political arena by endorsing a candidate for president. The mm-hmm. New Age teacher giving lessons on her website, Marianne Williamson, has started an organization called the Peace Alliance to establish a U.S. Department of Peace. What can we do? <laughs> Spread the word and tell others to open their eyes. Author Carrington Steele uncovers the truth in a new book, Don't Drink the Kool-Aid available at cs.com.
0: Christian <laughs> All right, I'm sorry I couldn't I don't I couldn't figure out how to make it louder. Um but a couple of things that she said I think that are important is one of them is um when she says um you know God God is a feeling, not a belief. That's terrible. I mean, how does that make any sense at all when feelings change so rapidly? Um, there's something else she said earlier um, that I wanted to highlight as well. I, 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 I can't remember now. Um, the jealous thing is, is interesting. That that's one of the things that happens to her. Is that she was at a meet, you know, at a church, and um, the preacher said, "Well, the Lord thy God is a jealous God," and she says, "God is jealous," and she says, "God is jealous of me." That tells you where her center was and why she was destined to reject God in the beginning. And remember, I told you yesterday, she actually, Whitley Phipps is someone who she often has sought counsel from and knows. And and I know Whitley Phipps, just from my conversation with him, has tried to really encourage her many times to go the right path. He's very disappointed, I know, because I I still speak to him even with what she's gotten into now. Um, But, um, you know, this, what she's doing now, I mean, there are over 3 million people, that are now a part of this church. And you saw the young lady that came on. She said, you know, I've been reading the book, but it, it doesn't jive with my Christian beliefs. And so I'm trying to figure out what do I do? And, and, and Oprah Winfrey's like, well, I'll tell you what I did. Basically, I threw God under the bus. I had to throw Christ under the bus in order to believe this other stuff. And that's really what she's leading people to do. Um, if you go back even further, I really want to commit. I would love to meet the lady in the audience at the Oprah Winfrey Show. Who was like, no, she stood up. And that probably wasn't an Adventist lady. I, that tells you, though, that there are people out there who are willing to believe and will defend their beliefs. Because that could not be easy to be on Oprah Winfrey's show in the audience, a woman who gives away cars sometimes and stuff, and say, listen, no, 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 no. What about Christ? Amen. And then stand up and say, no, Jesus is the only way. Set on national TV in defiance of Oprah Winfrey. That. That's good stuff, and that's being unashamed. Amen? I mean, that, that's being unashamed. So that was one of the ones I want to see. I, I kind of There's nothing else really on there. They're advertising the book, Don't Drink the Kool-Aid, um, which I think we won't drink the Kool-Aid. Um, so the other video, and I think we might have enough time to show, is the one with T.D. Jakes. This one, I couldn't figure out how to edit it to just get the part I wanted, so it's about eight minutes long, so... I'm going to go ahead and let it play for a second because you don't need to see his introduction. And These guys I, I didn't put the microphone on it yet. That's why you he can't hear it. I don't, I don't know if you want to watch all of this but this is how he enters the show. It's a massive production. Kind of jazzy music. You know people dapping each other up. Greeting each other. It's a good time. Uh, hopefully they're married. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Brotherly. <laughs> Brotherly love. <laughs> Brotherly hug. Um, so I guess I'll just put it on there. He, he does a little introduction part you don't need to hear either. But I, I really, it's about four minutes into it kind of where he really jumps into talking about the Sabbath itself. Um And that's the part I really want you to get. But I guess since we have about ten minutes, I'll just go ahead and let you listen to the whole thing. Hopefully you can. No, because if you do it, it's inside the PowerPoint now, it doesn't work anymore. Can you hear it? He's going to be harder to hear. I want you to get this okay. Bless you. It's all the way up. If I click on it, it just shuts it off. But here, here's the, the message starting, so.
3: I think one of the most important things that our faith offers to us today. Is a resting place. Can you guys hear it? A resting
0: place. If you're in the front, you probably can hear it. But actually, goes all
3: the way back to the Old Testament. It is a resting place that David talks about in Psalms 23. When he braggadociously makes a statement about God that I deeply appreciate, he says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not walk. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside the still waters. He restores He restores my soul. he talks about a place of rest
0: where I come oh, yep. from steel
3: bars and find green grass, not because no, the law of my strength.
0: No, there it is, he fixed it, that's what you had to do.
3: Yeah. <laughs> that, that I have with the shepherd himself. He describes me as sheep. Uh, <laughs> needing leadership, needing guidance, not to insult my intelligence, but to unlock the vulnerability that I have between me and God, that comparatively, all of my wisdom is foolishness in the mind of God that I find myself engaged in a conflict so overwhelming that God doesn't provide a solution for me. I will never get out on my own. I said I will never get out on my own. Say that with me. I will never get out on my own. You'd be surprised how long you can live and not know that. <laughs> Keep thinking that you can get yourself out or you're going to find somebody who can get you out. You eventually you come to a point that you recognize that you will never get out on your own. And after a series of bad relationships, you begin to realize that other people can't get you out of you. you come to live with your problem, you find out that they have as many
0: or more problems as you are. Now notice, oops, <laughs> no, that's okay. Notice that he always speaks to people's conditions and relationships. He really speaks to women who are broken. That's his. That's the strength of his ministry. And he doesn't get to the Sabbath yet So I want to point that out Just keep watching how much he just dwells on that hurt and that pain As the whole point of his message But there are certain elements out of this
3: message That I think that you need to understand That are very profound and very powerful I took the time to read Jeremiah Because Jeremiah brings up an issue about the Sabbath That I would like to talk about for a few moments He says that the Lord commands us to take heed to yourselves That we bear no burden on the Sabbath day do bring it by the gates of Jerusalem. He said, I don't want you to bear any burdens. No, I don't want to see you up under a load uh, on the Sabbath day. I don't want to see you coming into my presence bogged down with things that would stop you from having a real worship experience with me. He said, Don't bring things out of your house, issues out of your house, for you are laden down with this issue and that issue, unable to unpack. Where you fit? where you come from, walking along with loads of packages on you, your heart is overwhelmed. He says, I want you to come to the point of freedom in me. Somebody say freedom. You must understand that one of the signs of the covenant that God had with Israel in the Old Testament was the Sabbath day. Now, I grew up in the Baptist church, in a very traditional Baptist church at that, and I grew up going to Sunday school, and vacation Bible school. And when I went to vacation Bible school and Sunday school, they taught me about the Sabbath day. And there was a great debate going on at that time as to what day was the real day to worship God. That debate continues to this day and has existed all the way back uh, to the Old Testament, Old Testament theology as to what is the right day uh, to worship God. In spite of the fact that the New Testament tells us not to give respect to days, we're still debating over what day we ought to worship. I had run into some good friends uh, as a young man as a seven-day Adventists, and I still have a lot of friends who worship the Lord uh, on Saturday, which technically is the Sabbath day, and there was a great deal of debate going on with them as to uh, what was the right day to worship God. I have absolutely no problem with anybody who chooses to go to church on Saturday. Uh, I have no problem with that. I would never debate that. I would never argue about it. I can pass by the Seventh day Adventist Church and weigh and respect and appreciate their right to worship uh, on Saturday. Uh, probably because I also worship on Saturday. Yeah, I do. I hope that does not exempt me from an opportunity to serve as your pastor, but I, I worship on Saturday. I always. Ever since I've been saved, I worship uh, on Saturday and Friday and, and and Thursday and generally on Wednesday too and, 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 and Tuesday uh, and, and Monday uh, as well and, and, and Sunday. Sunday also, I worship on Sunday. I don't have to come to a building to be in worship. I worship the Lord wherever I am and wherever I go. But there's a great deal of uh, debate about it, and I, I can remember that uh, my Sunday school teacher took me to the New Testament and showed me a scripture in the Book of Acts that it said on the first day of the week uh, they came together in the Book of Acts. And she did that to make me understand that she said that the New Testament Sabbath was Sunday, and that it was the New Testament Sabbath because it was the new beginning and that Christ rose from the dead on the third day and from the New Testament forward, uh, we should worship on Sunday. And while I respect that reasoning and that philosophy, I certainly fall short of making a doctrine out of that because I think that they're the deeper revelation. Uh, yeah. they're, they're the deeper revelation. If you'll bear with me a few minutes, I'm going to pull a couple of threads and share some things with you that I think will be helpful to you. Uh, First of all, you must remember that it was on the seventh day in the book of Genesis that God ceased from his labor and entered into rest. He stopped working and entered into his rest in the book of Genesis. And the Bible says in the book of Exodus, there is no mention of the Sabbath day from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus when God gives the Ten Commandments. And when he gives the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, he says, remember the Sabbath day, which looks back at the book of Genesis. And then he says the Word 2, which looks forward to the future, remember the Sabbath day, backwards to keep it holy unto the Lord. In the statement in the Ten Commandments, we have a look backwards and a look forward. Now I want to take a moment and glance back at what the Sabbath day was, and then I want to take a moment and look forward at what the Sabbath day is, and then I'm going to get to the... That
0: so must be all of it. I think that's all of it. The text you was quoting about the gathered on the first day, in the Greek, is actually Sabbath, though. If you go back and look at the original language, it's not the first day of the week, it's the first Sabbath of the month. Oh, wow. If you go back and look at the Greek for that, they're taking it completely out of context. Well, the point is, that where he's going with that is that most churches aren't going to make the argument that Sunday is the day over the seventh day. They lose that argument. Where he's going is this idea that Christ is our rest. And what they're going to do is do away with all days first. That's why he goes through this whole Saturday through Sunday. It's a, it's a, it's a more savvy way to do away with the Sabbath. If you make the argument that every day is holy and Christ is now the Sabbath, so we rest in Christ, well, that's a different argument completely. That it's difficult to argue because you're not arguing apples and apples. And so they do that. They'll get rid of any day of worship and then come back and institute Sunday. And that's really what he's saying. He's basically saying, don't worry about the seven-day Sabbath um, because G- Christ is your rest. You know, And that's really the whole point of this. If you watch the whole sermon, he gets out of this back into the relationship stuff, and he really is talking about if you're in Christ, you shouldn't be carrying any burdens. Because the Bible says on, you shouldn't carry burdens on the Sabbath. He's saying, well, you shouldn't carry burdens at all. And he loves to pray. Again, he prays on relationship and um Life situations. He really just stays there. That's his whole point of his messages. But again, I believe he may be as much a Jesuit infiltrator as anyone else. And I think his point really here is to take the time to try and destroy the seven-day Sabbath. And you can see where he does it. And and of course, because he doesn't go into any depth of what he's explaining, he just glosses over stuff. No real Bible, no verses. You know, you see how little actual text he uses in all of the talking he's giving. I mean, he's just really giving you his opinions. And you, and, you, and you see how he's able, he has such a good speaking style. He knows how to really lure the crowd and he can bait the crowd with the whole thing. You see how he went, oh, you know, I keep Saturday holy. And you, you, even you're thinking, oh, well, maybe he keeps, and then he just, well, and Friday. And the crowd starts to get turned, you know what I'm saying? He, he's able to hold the crowd there and then pull them in, pull them in, and then bam, hit him with the deception. Because he says something profound. He says Saturday is technically the Sabbath. He admits which day the seven-day Sabbath is. He, he actually admits it despite all of the, his, his, his attempts to undo the Sabbath. He has to admit that the seventh day is the Sabbath. He doesn't make that argument. Instead, he says no, it's different in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But then he doesn't even make that argument. He's too slick to do that. Instead, he jumps ahead of that and says, really, there's a deeper revelation. And that deeper revelation is that, and I've heard a friend of mine who's a former Adventist, I just happened to run into him when I was doing a family medicine residency in Alabama, and this guy was so angry at the Seventh-day Adventist church, and it was amazing because he says, Christ is my Sabbath now. So I don't need, to, you know, I don't need a seven-day Sabbath or anything. Christ is now my Sabbath. You know, I'm not into days. And even when T.D. Jakes says, um, Christ says, have no uh, respect or, or of days, um, he quotes out of, that's out of, um, is that? Philosophy. 2. Phylogen's two. Um, and when you see what he quotes, it, he, doesn't, he doesn't go into the text itself, doesn't really read the text because the text doesn't say what he's saying it says. They were speaking about feast days and festivals. They weren't speaking, it was not speaking about the, the fourth commandment Sabbath day at all. Right? But you see, when you just gloss over it like that, and and what do you think the congregation there does? They just believe what he says. This man is a a multi-millionaire, you know, bishop of over probably hundreds and thousands of people for all we know. And he says it and they just believe it. And obviously somebody must have brought the issue of the Sabbath to him, why he even preached that sermon in my opinion. A good friend of mine was, was offered a job as a chef, one of the guys at our church out in California. And he said that these guys live so, such a lavish lifestyle, number one. But number two, he said, you know, it's not really about Bible for them. It's about how do you keep people coming every Sunday. And as you can hear the message, it's a very feel-good message. I mean, almost as if him and Oprah and Eckhart Tolle colluded to make the message simply make you feel better from the inside out. I saw a hand over here. And that is a lie. Yeah. That is a clear lie because of the manna falling. Um, that was a very clear reference to the Sabbath. Man, That's, that, that's true. I didn't, I didn't even pick that up. <coughs> Who? Is his son a seven day Adventist? Oh, his friend. Well, he said he has friends that are seven day Adventist. Well, I don't know. I never heard that. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer and close this session. I think we we're a little over time, but at least we did get the videos in, and somehow, miraculously, somebody figured out how to turn up the volume on the speaker. By your Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the ministry of the spirit of prophecy in our church. We thank you, Lord, that we, you have given us the ability to point out deception. And Father God, let us not just point it out. Let us now, Lord, really share with others the truth so that the truth can overcome these lies. Bless us, Lord, that we would be faithful servants and that we would, Lord, share your truth and your gospel with others. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons,